0: how there are these four different generations and they keep cycling through over and over again. So if you do baby boomers, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z, Gen Z is the same as the silent generation. So people who are 80 to 100 years old have the same genetic makeup as children that are twenty zero to 20. Well, not genetic, um, but the same generational makeup. So the way yeah, a, the silent generation thinks is the way the zero to 20 year olds think. So, so the children that'll be born soon will think similar to how the baby boomers think right now.
1: So welcome to our podcast. I wanna introduce my guest today, Lisa Woodruff. Um, if you will allow me, let me go over her bio real quick. She's a founder and CEO of Organize 365, a company that helps women take back their homes and paper in one year with functional organi- organizing systems at work. Hopefully men too, you know, but <laughs> like she's uh, the author of the paper solution that we'll be talking about, um, what to shred, what to save and how to stop it from taking over your life with Penguin uh, Random, um, Random House. And she's, she's an author as well. Um, so, you know, her writing is going to be good. Uh, Lisa, welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course, we help men as well. But, you know, you <laughs> got a niche down. So I started with me, an overwhelmed middle-aged woman, and, and now we've grown from there.
1: That's awesome. Now, I didn't mention your podcast because I wanted to, for you to be able to talk about it yourself. So you've got a podcast as well?
0: Yes. organized 365 will be six years old in September. I love talking. <laughs> awesome.
1: <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so I like talking too. I'm not sure if everybody likes listening to me, but I like talking as well. So, um, so tell me, first of all, can you tell me a little bit of your background? Because we're an entrepreneurial podcast. And I want to know, you know, what got you into doing your own business? Because um, not everybody has a, you know, sort of the gumption and the, you know, the personal motive, uh, motivation to be able to do that. Can you tell me about that a little bit?
0: Yeah. So I am a fourth generation female college graduate. So my great-grandmother went to college, my grandmother, my mother, myself, my father actually did not. But on both sides of my family, my mother's and father's side, all the way back four generations, everyone owned their own business. Like apparently- we don't work for people, like we are entrepreneurs. <laughs> right. And I found myself at 39 years old, I'd gone back to teaching, I'd done direct sales, I'd done a bunch of hodgepodge, you know, things that were on my tax return. I had 11 Schedule C's. The year before on my tax return, I was cleaning houses, I had three different direct sales companies, I was teaching, I was tutoring. So I was doing all these solopreneur things And I was basically told by my administrator I wasn't a good teacher. And I'm like, okay, I'm 39. I'm not 23. So I know I'm a good teacher. So if you don't value me being a good teacher, then maybe it's not a good thing that I am not being a good mom and a wife and a homeowner uh, so I could be a good teacher. And you're telling me I'm not one. I'm driving home, of course, in the dark, in the rain, right? And I'm saying to myself, well, if they don't care... Lisa, you're going to be 40 in three months. When are you going to finally do what you're uniquely called to do? When are you going to start your own business? Like, let's go. It's time to go. So I quit my teaching job. No idea how I was going to make money. I had had a blog before I understood SEO. Oh. I said, I'm good at organizing. Everything I've done is related to organizing. I'll name it Organize 365. That'll be great for SEO. No idea how it's going to make money no idea uh, how I was going to monetize it or grow it, but I just knew January 1st, 2012, I was going to turn 40, and I was going to be an entrepreneur, and it was time. I just had to figure it out. I burned all the boats, and <laughs> I
1: <It's like, laughs> here, here I am. You burned all the boats, and so yep. you know you you, were, you couldn't uh, go back. So about your teaching. Now you were a, um, you taught at a Montessori school. Is that right?
0: I did. So I, uh, I have two degrees from Miami university in early childhood education and first through eighth grade with a kindergarten endorsement. So I could do birth through 13 year olds. And I had taught in public schools. And then once we adopted our kids, I was a stay at home mom and direct sales. And then after the whole world imploded economically, I went back to teaching because at least it was some money. And at that point, it was a Montessori school. I taught middle school, uh, high school, middle school science and math.
1: Wow. It's a very busy schedule. I think just, yeah. uh, I'm not sure I can handle just one of those. <laughs> like, uh, in direct sales, tell me what you did in direct sales and how you got into doing direct sales.
0: It's it's such a good learning ground for entrepreneurs, I feel. I Especially was in, solopreneurs,
1: um, right? Especially yes, very much so. Themselves.
0: Because right. you have to learn all the skills. You have to learn how to sell then you have to learn how to build a team. You learn, have to learn how to market, and, but you do it within the confines of a great product that you already know you're selling. Um, so that's helpful. The company I was in and I grew the biggest team in was Creative Memories, which is a scrapbooking company. And then I was in some multi-level marketing companies. I think I've been in over 30 direct sales companies. I've been really? a leader in like 10 of them.
1: Mm-hmm. That's amazing. How long uh, did you do that for a total...
0: So Creative Memories was 17 years Mm -hmm. and the unusual thing about me and Creative Memories and I've feel that most entrepreneurs will end up this way if they go down the direct sales path is that I had a very small team, but a very profitable team. So my team, when I would win the cruise or the trip and I'd be talking to people who are making the same dollar per hour I was, their team was four times as big as mine. Their their customer list was over a thousand and my customer list was 200, yet we brought the same money home. So I understood that entrepreneurial mindset that I didn't want to work harder. I wanted to work smarter. And I was really good at recruiting people into the company that actually would grow it as a business. I didn't have anybody that was just doing it as a hobby.
1: How did, how did you motivate your people to, to get such great results out of them?
0: So I interviewed my recruits. And so I would have an interview with them and I would explain to them what it was like to have your own business and what were their goals. And usually their goal was like $400 to $1,000 a month is what they wanted to earn. They wanted to earn preschool or some after school thing for their kids usually was their goal. And then once they became a team member, every um, six months, I would have a night where I'd bring the spouses in and I would explain what it meant to be in leadership and how much more money they can earn and what that would mean in the time with the person being away from, the home. And I answered any questions that the spouse would have directly versus having them go through the, um, recruit. And we had a lot of people go to leadership that way.
1: That's interesting. It's, uh, you know, it's, um, I want, should I not ask you your age? I'm, you know, I'm
0: 48. <laughs> I'm not, I have no problem. I'm 48.
1: 48. Okay. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Um, if it makes you feel bad, I'm, I'm a lot older. So, but, um, it, At our age, your age, I'm sorry, um, starting at 45 and and upwards to about 65 or so, this is actually the largest group of new entrepreneurs that are coming into the market. A lot of people don't realize this and uh, it's, we have, you know, incredible networks. We've got um, a lot of skill sets, a lot that we bring to the table. And also we've lost a lot of the naivete that you might have as like, you know, I'm going to start a business. Yeah. You know, it's going to be great because, you know, you've had the ups and downs, you've had the failures, successes, et cetera. Um, what do you think that you bring uh, to the table in terms of, as an entrepreneur, who's not, you know, 22 and, Climbing up to be a billionaire, which seems to be what the media thinks, thinks of, of uh, entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah. So you're talking about Gen X, really? The Gen Xer that is not yes. a baby boomer or a millennial? And I think there are a couple of benefits we have as, as Gen X people in general. Number one, we were very independently raised. So we were not micromanaged as kids. We kind of had to make our own fun. Like children should be seen and not heard. Go out there and figure it out. So we're <laughs> very industrious. We also have good credit. So we've been working long enough that we could pull a credit on our house or we can have some extra credit cards. We've got great credit. That has really helped me a lot, like financial credit. And then also, I will often say like your 20s and 30s, you're figuring out who you want to be in all of those experiences, those 11 Schedule Cs that I had, perfectly positioned me at the age of 40 to start this online entrepreneurial journey I've been in in the last eight and a half years. And if I didn't have all of those experiences, it would have been much harder to grow my business at this point. So I really feel like your 20s and 30s, I say to my kids now that are 19 and 20, I'm like, you will have seven, 10 jobs in your 20, do them all, say yes to everything. And you don't know how that's going to turn out into something in your 40s and 50s, but it will.
1: Yeah, I want to put a huge flag on what you're saying right now, because a lot of um, young people in particular that we counsel, their thought uh, tends to be that, you know, I need to, you know, jump in, do a company and become a billionaire by the time I'm 23 and all that good kind of good stuff that uh, is fed by the media through Silicon Valley, etc. So, um, but the reality is that, you know, by the time you're 40, you might actually have some of the skill sets that you need from having worked at different positions, from knowing how to manage people, from understanding, you know, how to deal with cash flow and the other 110 things that you need to know in order to be able to even think about really running a business. And the vast majority of businesses don't succeed. I mean, that's the reality of it. So you've got to be able to try over and over again, um, if it doesn't, not take, you know, uh, not being successful very seriously. And, and all that huge skill set, I think it's really good for yourself and other people who are entrepreneurs that, you know who are not in their 20s to be able to give that kind of advice to people. It's going to be okay. It's okay to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. What are you worried about? You're in your 20s. Let's try to enjoy our lives a little bit. You know, um, You've got plenty of time to do it. And don't think for a second that it's just going to come naturally or easily, unless if you know you hit the lottery ticket, which doesn't really happen in life, right? So that's just something to really be mindful of, don't you think?
0: I do, and I think the other thing is um, our view of the world changes as we get older. So mm-hmm. in your twenties and thirties, you are so worried what people are thinking about you, and it's like, for women. I don't know about for men, but for women, like the year you turn forty, mm-hmm. you go oh. I don't care what you're thinking. Like, here's what I'm going to choose: how I feel about my political party, about vaccination, about if I'm going to wear a mask or not. Like, I know what I'm going to do, and I'm just going to do it. I don't care what you think about what I'm doing. And then I heard someone say, "Yeah." And when you turn sixty, you realize nobody was thinking about you anyway. So I mean, <laughs> I think in our twenties and thirties, we do a lot of things in business. I know I did, trying to please other people and get other people's attention and make other people um, interested in what we're doing. And then in our forties and fifties. 50s, we start to realize, you know what, I'm just going to go head down on my thing, what I'm uniquely good at. And the people that are attracted to me, I'm going to go with that. And then yeah, apparently when you're in your 60s, you're like, yeah, no one was thinking about us anyway.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I saw a recent uh, Jerry Seinfeld uh, special on uh, Netflix, mm-hmm. and he talks about how if you're in your 60s, that you stop caring what people when people are, you know, ask you questions. And when you're in your 70s, you just don't even bother answering. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of true. As you get older, you sort of, you lose that muscle that makes you think that you have to please everybody, which can be really insightful and helpful for you as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I look back, for example, because I spent um, one one of my more recent um, businesses was our law firm, IP Law Leaders. We do IP Law and I have a Big background um, in intellectual property technology um, type of law, but after many years of working at um, some of the bigger law firms, I decided to to make that change. At that point, now I, I had, had um, some entrepreneurial activities. I formed some some startups that did you know quite well for themselves and everything, but you know there were there were pluses, there were minuses. You know that was that was a whole journey that I was on. I always wanted to stay doing you know what I what I feel where I contribute the most, which is in law. And uh, and it's been, you know, for me, it's been that kind of experience. But since I was at these big firms for such a long time, um, I didn't come up through it. I think sort of like yourself and that I was doing all these different things. I always felt like I had to do something to please others. I had to please whatever particular partner mm-hmm. I was working for. Um, I had to please, you know, the particular client, um, which is which is great. I mean, you have to do that in life, but at the same time, it can put a lot of constraints on you and your freedom and your ability to, you know, um, to grow. Um, and also your ability to be your best self and, and develop your business better. And you know, so I always feel like if uh, some of the big firms allowed the attorneys to be you know, solepreneurs by themselves, individual mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, they would do so much better because then they could talk to clients like normal human beings. I see that you do that naturally, but, you know, I can tell you've had a career working for yourself and, you know, even your podcast is is an extension of that. So can you talk to that for a moment?
0: Yeah. You know, I find so many entrepreneurs have a law background, like so many. (laughs) And um, when you were saying that, I don't think it's really law. I think, so I just, uh, The Paper Solution is a traditionally published book with Penguin Random House. I also have self-published books. And what I've learned, the difference between a self-published book and a traditionally published book is that there's much more rigor you have to go through. If you're going to have a traditionally published book, you have to get an agent and then you have, the agent has to shop it. And then you have to have a a publisher that wants to publish it. And then you have to negotiate the advance. And this is all before you even write the book. And then you write the book and then you do edits and then you realize you don't get to pick the cover and you don't get to pick the font and you really don't get to pick anything. And they're in control of your book. They actually own your book. You don't own your book at all. (laughs) I see the same thing in the legal field. Like for other people who've gone through Law, it's not necessarily that you have a degree as a lawyer or you're an attorney, but it's that you went through four years of college and then three years of law school and then took that bar exam. It grew these muscles in you that are different than someone like me that just goes to a four-year college or doesn't go to college at all. It's just a different um, set of muscles that you grow. And I find that a lot of lawyers- end up being entrepreneurs and I think it's that you know they learn that you know I could do hard things I could do all these years of school and then I can also say but I'm going to bet on myself or I'm going to pivot this other way and I don't have to take all of that that I've done and give it to somebody else.
1: Yeah I think it is interesting I I think also part of it I mean you make a really great point and a lot of lawyers do go into entrepreneurship Um, I think part of that is that we just naturally by virtue of our profession have to communicate And we're comfortable with it. So for example, you know, this is a new podcast. And for me, it wasn't as hard if I wasn't always, you know, talking to clients and things like that. So it's just kind of an extension of what I naturally do anyway of communicating. Um, And I also think uh, lawyers as part of their, a good lawyer is a good listener more than a good talker. Okay. And, um, if you're, I have to be the person who understands what you're saying, delve into it a little bit more deeply. That's both for you as a client, or if, I, if you were an adverse and I were taking your deposition, it would be kind of the same thing. So it would be that you know, those, those listening skills, those communicating skills are really, really important for lawyers. And I think a lot of lawyers, um, you know, they've gone into the profession and, you know, they've seen the world kind of change. It used to be that you did X, Y, Z, and now it's the whole thing is the whole landscape's changed, you know. It used to be your, your opportunity uh, was if, if you went to, let's say, a big firm, you went through the standard ranks, became a partner, et cetera, et cetera, everybody was kind of in line. And now we have an entrepreneurial, solopreneurial kind of world. And it's that those availabilities, you know, those, those opportunities are available to lawyers like they are to others, which is kind of really cool to see that, yeah. right? Plus, you know, between you, me, and the wall, uh, I don't think the lawyers are raking in the kind of dollars that they did before. And there are a lot of times they're like, you know, forget it. I'll make more money if I create my own business and get my own clients than having to worry about, you know, pleasing this big firm, et cetera. Now the advantages mm-hmm. of a big firm are that there is, um, and you know, I, I didn't want to have this conversation talk about law firms with you, but, I, but the advantages is, is that there is just, it's like a smorgasbord. There's just so much different kinds of mm-hmm. law that's covered, so many experts and, and everything else. So if you have a smaller firm, a boutique firm, you want to specialize, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's what we did in intellectual property, and technology law, we do licensing litigation. Right, but I'm not doing, you know, FCC law. You know, there there are, you don't have all the breath. But at the same time, the opportunity for me, and this is this also goes to what you're talking about with lawyers being entrepreneurial more. The opportunity for me was that you know, without the huge overhead of a big firm, I can charge. Rates right. that allow me to have small portable. business clients and mm-hmm. you know middle sized business clients, which was frankly a lot hard, harder to do when someone says your billing rate is you know over thousand dollars an hour, right? And you can't change that, so right? Yeah, I that's just like think the reality.
0: So many things are changing right now. I mean, they were changing before the pandemic, mm-hmm. but I just keep. I have this image in my head and I keep saying it, it's like we're inside of a snow globe and they just keep picking us up and shaking us and putting us down. And then it all starts falling. We're like, okay, I think I know what I'm doing. They're like, we're going to shake you again. I'm like, oh. Um, And I just think that all industries, households, families, incomes, like we're just in a huge time of change.
1: Right, right. You know, one thing I want to mention is, and by the way, I totally agree with you. I could not agree with you more. <laughs> I
0: just, yeah, do you feel shook in Cameron? I, <laughs> like, yes,
1: I really agree. But um, the thing is, I I see uh, there's a lot of criticism, you know, like by uh, maybe some Gen Xers, but probably more baby boomers of the millennials, and as they come through, and you know, they don't have the same work ethic as we did. They don't do that, etc. But I also see a lot of, you know, first of all, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Mm-hmm. um they have this generation has been dealt you know some really tough hands mm-hmm. i mean now we're going through COVID 19 and before it was with the great recession which is the worst thing mm-hmm. the worst recession we had since the great depression itself and you know imagine coming just graduating from college and coming into no job market um the social unrest and everything else they've had to deal with is just a, a remarkable meanwhile i like their let me put it this way. I like their value set, their set of values, their basic morality, because they tend to say, you know what, I'm not going to work 100 hours a week. I'm happy making less money and, um, and having some independence and be able to enjoy my life. When I hear that, I'm like, awesome for you. And I say that as somebody who tends to be closer to working hundred hours a week. You know, I grew grew up doing that. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, you're always working. So it's good to really enjoy what you do, hopefully. But if you're, but I really like that sense of that, you know, you're a human being, you're more than just a cog working for someone else's idea of what their industry is going to be. And that sense of independence and everything, I think has really changed everything. And when you throw on top of that social media um, and, for good or bad, it's actually created an enormous amount of opportunities that you didn't have before. Um, Could you talk about that for a moment, about social media and how that's, um, has it been impactful? It sounds like you're, you know, you were in direct sales, you're, uh, what is your feeling about it? What is your- So I, I love the
0: conversation about Generations I have done a lot of research on generations. Even when I was a child, I'm from a very large uh, Irish Catholic family with multi generations alive at all times. And I, I just love big families. I love generations. I love the book Generations by Neil Strauss and William Howe. It's a really thick book, it's not available on Audible. And they talk about how there are these four different generations and they keep cycling through over and over again. So if you do baby boomers, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z, Gen Z is the same as the silent generation. So people who are 80 to 100 years old have the same genetic makeup as children that are 20, zero makeup? to 20, well, not genetic, um, but the same generational makeup. So the way yeah, a, the silent generation thinks is the way the zero to 20 year olds think. So. So the children that will be born soon will think similar to how the baby boomers think right now. And when you look at these four generations that cycle through over and over and over again, they each are designed to do a different thing. And the millennials are designed to bring about civic change. And we see that's kind of happening, right? They're the civic generation. As they go through, every 80 years, they make these different civic changes. As the baby boomers go through, they make a lot of corporate changes. So big corporations are usually when the baby boomer generations go through and Gen X and Gen Z were recessive generations. So you don't see a lot of change coming out of us. We kind of are the glue between the different generations that are there. So understanding that each generation has a different purpose and that they cycle through over and over again is very comforting to me. And then also everybody's going to think that their generation is the greatest and that the other generations should do it the way they do. Like I mentioned earlier that Gen X, we were left to be um, we kind of raised ourselves. We were latchkey children. Um, were, we're a smaller generation. We just have a lot of unique idiosyncrasies to us. Whereas baby boomers are huge. Millennials are huge. They're going to make a lot more change as they go through. And I love millennials. I think they are very hardworking. And I heard something interesting a couple of weeks ago. Someone said to me, The reason why millennials are always saying, What is my job? What do you want me to do? I want to feel like I have a purpose, is because when they went through school, which is after Gen X, so this is different, everything they did had a rubric. So they were like, Here's what you do to get an A, here's a B, here's a C, you know, four points for this, three points for this, and they would get their papers back. Like when I went to school, you just got a letter grade on it. And like, I, that was the grade. Like you didn't know why you got that letter grade. But millennials, when they went through school, it was like, here's how you get an A. And if they did the work and they did it, they knew exactly what they did that ended up in a B instead of an A. So as they're going into the workforce, they're like, what do I need to do? And we, as Gen X, when we went into the workforce with um, baby boomers, I don't know how you were parented, but I was parented, do as I say, not as I do. And because I said so. And I accepted that and I moved on, like they said so. So when I went into the workforce and they said, you have to do this, even if I didn't see other people doing it, I was like, well, that's what I'm supposed to do because I was told to do this, so I'm gonna do that. That's not how millennials were raised. Millennials had a seat at the table. They had family dinners. They discussed their day. They, they did things as a family. My parents never went to any of my games or my practices, but <laughs> millennial parents always did. And so they were raised in more of a community atmosphere. So when they end up in the workforce and they say, you know, how do I do a good job at this? What is my job description? How do, how do I have a seat at the table? It's because that's how they were raised with a seat at the table.
1: Yeah, I love how you put that, and you know, I just learned a lot just from from your explaining it. Because I'm definitely part of that generation. I, I was born in '65, so I'm the first mm-hmm. year of Gen X. Yeah, and '64 was yeah, '64 was the was the cutoff for baby boomers. Yep. And uh, so I'm, I guess, a little bit of a you know split personality or something like yeah. that between the two. And you know, most of my friends are probably uh, baby boomers. But when we grew up, yes, if I were put in a job situation, I didn't ask any questions. They said, do this, do that, and I did it. And so sometimes I think when people in that generation, they look back at millennials, just like you said, that's the reason they're asking questions, because they had the seat at the table. But for us, it was like, hold on a second. You know, why are you asking I didn't so have any questions? You're being disrespectful, yeah. you know, right. all this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Right. So, um, it's really funny the dynamics of it that you that you mention. Um, I said, you know. I think, again, I love baby boomers, but you've, you've done a lot of damage, okay, including the planet Earth, you know, it's like, <laughs> we have global warming, it's like, you've destroyed everything. So it's like, when, when the young people criticize them, I am happy to jump on board, and I tend to be very progressive in my politics to begin with. I'm not looking back, I'm looking to see, what are the young people saying, you know, maybe they're right. You know, when young people uh, criticize the older generation, I tend to look for, at their viewpoint and say, well, let's really listen to what they're saying, you know, instead of just saying, you know, you whippersnappers, you don't know what the heck you're talking about, etc. I think what our generation kind of saw as Generation um, Xers, is is that the baby boomers, they just, because they were so large and so intrusive, etc., they took everything and I was <laughs> like, they eat you know, it's like there was this old joke about, uh, you know, the, the guy goes to the buffet, you eat everything, you know? So it's like, <laughs> there's nothing left after they're done for the rest of us. Now, is that the case or not? Because I look back even in my own profession and I can tell you they are, again, I'm really sorry. I know there's a lot of really talented lawyers out there. You're all great, you're all awesome. I'm not trying to insult anybody but a lot of you guys just rode the coattails and you became partners and you made the million dollars off of the backs of the young people working at those law firms, some in my generation, some in later generations, because your group, your baby boomers had power, you had control. And, uh, and it's like, it's good to realize that if you've, you've had kind of an entitled life, you know? Now, don't let me sound too bitter, but, but you know, there's definitely some of that going on, again, so mm-hmm. it's like, if there is some, there is some criticism of, of you, you should just sort of take it and say, you know what, maybe there's a point to this. Maybe we did, you know, get a lot of breaks. Now, obviously we're talking about a generation. I'm not talking about individuals. There right. are people that, you know, billionaires and there are people who struggle to survive. But just generationally, when you think that you have that kind of market power as one group, um, it really does, uh, you know, leave questions about, you know, what, what comes next. And what's really interesting for me is, this is a generation that came, you know, we're talking like free love and free sex and everything like in the '60s and stuff. Maybe they're a little bit uh, younger than that, but you know, for a generation that was so liberal, all of a sudden they become so conservative. You know, this is kind of the stuff that George Carlin used to joke about. (laughs) You know, it's like, yeah, who are you guys? You know, make up your mind. You know, um, what what group you're in. So uh, do you have anything to say about that?
0: (laughs) Oh, I have things to say about everything, Karen. Six years of podcasting. I have plenty to say. (laughs) I think baby boomers did not take it. They were given it. Ah. So when you think about when baby, so my parents were born in 1948, and 1949, they're the oldest baby boomers. And my dad's a family of six. So his youngest brother is the youngest baby boomer. And so I see that as they play out and the baby boomer generation is so big, it actually breaks into two cohorts. So the older boomers and the younger boomers are a little bit different. Um, And so they were literally handed these things. They were born as the war was ending and suburbs were developed because these big families were coming out schools were built because of these huge families and they really have created the change as they've gone through society and they've created all this societal change now they have they are no longer the largest generation it's now millennials and there is this tension as baby boomers don't want to give up power as who who does but you (laughs) don't give up power right you know who's losing this is not millennials it's gen x because we are the ones who would normally be the VP of sales and the CEOs of these companies if we were in the corporate structure, but the baby boomers are not giving up power. I mean, look at who's running for our presidential election, two baby boomers. You don't see a Gen Xer in there. Like none of the Gen X people are, yeah, we probably will not have a president. It will go straight to a millennial. We will not have a presidency. Wow,
1: that is really insightful. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really. Thought and of so it's going to
0: move from these two dominant generations, and Gen X is really going to lose out here in the middle because, like, my father. We're the middle child.
1: We are the no. middle child. I'm telling Kidding.
0: you. Well, here, come on, <laughs> let's be serious about this. We don't even have a name. They marked us with an X, and they're just moving on. Everybody. I mean, I do have a chip on my shoulder about it, but also I think it's kind of nice not to have the spotlight on me. So I'm like you guys just do what you're doing over there. I'm just going to go over here and build this little company and you just leave me alone and I'll be fine. But yeah, in a lot of corporations you have, um, you have baby boomers who are the CEOs and all the C-suite executives, and it's going to skip right to millennials. And it's going to skip right over Gen X. So the millennials well, will be fine.
1: Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you one thing. Um, what's not helping them is actually one of the reasons I want to have the podcast is to help what's not helping the baby boomers is they're they're in a particularly hard place with social media and the entire business world totally changing. You know, we're talking about people who had all their businesses locally. They, they did traditional media advertising, you know, they're the ones who have commercials. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who, who, who run it. They're the ones who run, you know, regular business as usual, corporate America. And when I was younger, we used to throw that, you know, I, I was at IBM as my, in my first job, and we used to throw that word around business as usual. But now it really means something, because yeah. this is a totally different way of looking at the world and the, the, the ability of anybody to be able to reach out and get clients and customers and brand themselves quickly, you know, astronomically fast compared to, you know, someone who's sitting there. So you're going to see a lot of the baby boomers, I think, going to be heading into retirement Actually, one of the things I wanna do is try to get them to get into entrepreneurship. Um, it, you know, And by the way, I would really like to see some of that for Gen Xers as well, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, I,
0: I, You can't buy social media though. And, that, and that's gonna be the problem is they've been used to using their political <laughs> influence, their social influence in their wallet to make changes. And what this pandemic is showing you is the money does nothing. Like you can't buy likes. I mean, you can buy them, but it doesn't sustain and it doesn't translate into sales. It is a, you have to authentically grow your social media.
1: Yeah, that's true. And it's something that you have to have a sense for. And you know what? My children have much better a much better sense than I do. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, if we want to have some kind of a... Um, any kind of social media campaign, you know, I, I speak with my wife and I say, well, let's ask the experts. So we ask our kids, you know, and if we're lucky, we'll get a couple seconds of advice, which is like yeah. right now, it's like do TikTok, you know? So, but um, by the way, which is the same thing as Gary Vaynerchuk and a lot of, yeah. a, a lot of others are saying. So uh, it's not like they're, they're off base in, in, in any way. One thing I w- wanted to mention, it just came to mind, you know, I love Conan O'Brien. You're listening, don't get mad at me. But I always thought Jay Leno was funnier. And uh, remember when uh, they kicked Conan and Brian off after he got the the Tonight Show, they kicked him off and they put Jay Leno back in. And a lot of people were, you know, a lot of people were mad about that, et cetera. And a a friend of mine, you know, at work, I said to him, I I don't understand why everyone's just such an up in arms about this because I thought Jay Leno was funnier. You know, maybe I have a different kind of a sense of humor, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and uh, he said, "Well, look at it this way. Conan was one of us. He's the first in our generation. He's not a baby boomer. Oh, true. Like ah, I get it. He was the first one who really was outside of the of the older generation of that had the power, even in the entertainment yeah.
0: industry. Do you think though, like when you think about baby boomers?" Bigger than life, you know, Oprah Winfrey, Mm -hmm. Donald Trump, these huge personalities. I think more the millennial and the Gen X version of that will be smaller personalities, but way deeper connections. Like a lot of people have a personal connection to Oprah, but they've never met her before. But you can really truly meet the podcasters or, you know, the individual brands that you're buying things from like people can meet me in person like i don't know as we'll have these huge superstar brands that we had out of the baby boomer generation now um, that we did then i think it'll be more intimate brands smaller brands it could still be lucrative and you could still have a great business off of that but i don't know if you'll get you know martha stewart type things
1: yeah i think there's a lot of wisdom in that and i think it's it's kind of the natural progression as everybody gets their voice it used yeah. to be just a very few, few people had their voices. We had NBC, ABC, and CBS. And, uh, and then we grew to cable. And um, then we had hundreds of channels. And, and now everyone's going to have a podcast. And I actually want everybody to have a podcast. I, I want everybody to have their voice and be able to communicate. I think it's important that you see yourself on the level playing field, just as important as anyone else. Your Your view matters. Your thoughts matter. I love that world. But you're right. Just by... The natural consequences of it. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be as easy to have just this huge branding mm-hmm. behind one person, um, yeah. et cetera. Now you no might percent. have one thing that does change is like you know go back a hundred years. No one could have imagined we'd have so many multimillionaires and billionaires. You know, we just expand as far as the financially at an astronomical rate. So it may be that you'll have, everybody out there will have a podcast and be a multimillionaire doing it. And things that we just cannot imagine or envision right now as, as the world changes. But I definitely see AI becoming just more and more a big part of that, you know? In my field, for example, in intellectual property, we're grasping and grappling a little bit with, you know, what happens when software creates something mm-hmm. and makes an invention, you know? An invention, that's, it's not recognized legally, what happens when uh, a software program creates a very good software program? You know, so these are some of the really interesting things that we're going to be grappling with and, and dealing with. But I think that the world is just getting more and more interesting. Now, I, I don't want to, I, I love our conversation, but I want to speak a little bit about your book and your business. You know, I just uh, enjoyed it a lot. So, so tell me, tell me about your book.
0: Um, So the paper solution I wrote after 10 years after I settled my father's estate, we were his power of healthcare, power of attorney, and then ultimately the executor of the estate. And I Googled everything, like how do you how do you get ready to meet with a lawyer? <laughs> it costs a lot of money. And my dad had four lawyers when he passed away. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to cost a fortune to talk to everyone. But there was no checklist. Like there was no checklist about what to pull out of the filing cabinets. And I met with other lawyers, uh, divorce lawyers, and estate lawyers for my clients when I was a professional organizer. And every time I would say, "You know, why didn't you do this this way? And they would say, well, we don't know what's in the filing cabinet. Like we don't know what paperwork is there. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know how to counsel um, how to help people settle in a state. And I realized that the only advice out there for organizing your paperwork was to color code your filing cabinet buy different color filing cabinets. And, and I could make filing cabinets look really, really pretty, but there were two problems with them. One, my clients could never maintain them. It was great for me. I came back every you know three to six months and I would file their papers and maintain them, but I didn't think that was a good lifelong solution. And then the second one was in 2016, as I was growing the online brand and people were organizing filing cabinets all over the United States and the world, uh, in Florida with all of the hurricanes we had that year and in California with all of the fires, people would be, emailing me and they would say, Lisa, we have to evacuate. What do we take with us? And I said, you don't just get out. And I thought that is a horrible answer to just say, well, you've got this beautiful color-coded filing cabinet, leave it there. Because there are important papers there, but not all of them were important. So I really set out to say, well, what, you know, what is the most important paper? And if you were evacuated, if you had time to leave your house, what would you take with you? And I came down with just four binders, one for your medical, one for your financial, one for your house if you have to replace it, and one for everything that's unique to you, your cleaning schedules, cooking, pets, vacations, things like that. And that's all in the
1: book. Wow. So wait, hold on a second. So tell me more. Come on. (laughs) <laughs> That's your, your book.
0: <laughs> well, I um, love all. All I got questions. was like a couple of paragraphs. I don't have I don't have I'm don't going to, to go like... get
1: this book. Um, convince me. Cause you're okay. dealing with somebody, you know how many terabytes of information we have? Um, yes. It's all electronic. Yeah. And I was fairly early in getting rid of all the paper and making sure everything was electronic. Everybody thought I was crazy when I did it. Um, and now I'm happy that we did, very happy. Mm-hmm. You can access everything, you can print it whenever you want, et cetera. And it's lots and lots and lots of information, but you know, it's just part of evolving. So tell me more. Yes,
0: <laughs> so, that was, so that's great. Smart. So you got digital. I could never get digital because for me to get digital, I was like, well, if I, what do I do? Just scan it all. And I'm not good with digital organization. Like I need, Paper. When I was at the hospital with my dad, I wanted to write down the belly rubin number and compare it to yesterday. And right, when right. we got to a certain number, he would need a blood transfusion. So I knew how many days out from the blood transfusion we were. But when they would just give me the number, I didn't know how it related to anything else. So I need to write things down. And when I was meeting with the estate lawyer, and I took that financial binder with me, and they would say, "Okay, where's your dad's title? What is his driver's license number? What is this?" I would either pull it out or I would write it down, and that's what I needed to bring the next time. And I lived four hours away, so I had to have have that I couldn't have the whole entire filing cabinet with me every yes, time exactly. I went to see the lawyer so I need an actual binder like as a parent of a special needs child I need a binder of all that information to walk into the meeting with because I can get their IEP change I can get them more services if I have paper so I love the digital solution this will not solve your digital problem this will take you from an overflowing file cabinet and piles of paper on your kitchen counter into a weekly paper organization time on Sunday for your daily paper, and then a couple of binders instead of massive filing cabinets. It will help you do all that if you want to do all that, or if you find yourself in a paper event like a divorce or someone is sick or you're moving or someone has passed away, you can literally buy the book, flip to that chapter, make just that binder so you can get through that crisis.
1: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I tell you, sometimes if you if you rely just on digital, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. You mm-hmm. know, like if you're going into trial, you've got your laptop right. there, but boy, you sure want to have your your binders with, that are indexed nicely for you so you can quickly open up. Because what are you going to tell the jury? Oh, I'm sorry, you know, the computer's not coming up right, you know. <laughs> it's, and it always lets you down, no matter how reliable, et cetera. No matter what anybody says, the the paper is there for you. It doesn't go away. You don't. It doesn't miraculously disappear, um, you know, without anyone's <laughs> control, et cetera. And to
0: hand someone a piece of paper and say this, I mean, it just adds gravitas to what you're saying. You know, like they cannot refute a piece of paper. It's easier That's to true. refute just verbal, or I'm going to email it to you, or see this thing right here, like. Paper just adds a lot of weight to what you say.
1: That's true. Like if you're if you're producing documents to the jury, you know you're let's say you know you're you want the judge to permit it, and you hand it to them, and you know they, they got this important thing. It's a lot better than take a look at my laptop. See that? <laughs> like, <laughs> Let
0: me put it on that the screen. That
1: works a lot better. You'd see it and you touch it, and mm. you'd be surprised how many people in my profession, lawyers. Um, regardless of age, but it tends to be more the baby boomers, (laughs) to be honest with you, they really want that paper. I mean, unless if they print something out, I even noticed that some millennials um, were were doing this when we were, when we work on something, because I was, I guess, more comfortable with the digital, they always want to print it out. Unless it was printed, it wasn't real. (laughs) So now it's real. I can grab this brief and I can review it and, you know, there's a certain tangibility of it, and I think using your senses. I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that you uh, you were teaching in Montessori schools because we had our kids in a Montessori school for a couple of years, and they they accentuate the meaning of you know the touch and feel, especially for mm-hmm. early development. Is that is that yeah? They use
0: all the senses, but I mean, it's statistically been proven. If you write something with your hand, you are five times more likely to remember it.
1: Mm. So Mm. if
0: you want, if you're struggling with spelling, write out that list. I mean, there's a reason why we had you writing out those lists. It will connect things to your brain. I'm also dyslexic. So I had a student that had a hard time with spelling and I used markers and I had them use different um, markers for each syllable of the word. And as soon as we did that, he went from failing spelling to acing all of his spelling tests really? because he could see the syllables of the word as he went through. And so just... There are different things that you can do when you're physically writing things down that will put that information in your brain more. Or I'm just thinking like, so I have intellect, I have patents and I have um, trademarks and copyrights and things like that. And so when I get things from my lawyer, I'll print it all out and I will go sit out back with an iced tea and I will read it. And you read things differently from a piece of paper than you do from a computer and you can mark it up and you can ask questions and the... Comment so that when I'm on the phone call with the lawyer, I can just flip to like, okay, I had these three questions, on page five this, on page 10 this, and on page 12 this, and they can explain to me what that legal ease is, and I can be like, great, let's file it.
1: Well, I can tell you one thing, as somebody who's read uh, thousands of patents and trademarks, particularly patents, because the writing is very small, mm-hmm. I tend to always print them to read them, even though, um, you know, technically, you could bring it up on the screen, you know, you can do fancier things, et cetera. Uh, nowadays i really like to do presentations even videos et cetera, um to explain what patents mean which i think people tend to like more but that printing it always it sort of took me to the finish line
0: yep
1: you know especially with a patent it can be quite complicated for somebody to for especially for a lay person to understand i mean after mm-hmm. you know your first 10 or 12000 <laughs> it gets a lot easier but you know it's uh, it can be fairly complicated one. to understand i just
0: it. need one <laughs> <laughs> it's all I need,
1: just one. Well, that's really cool. So tell me about your podcast.
0: So Organized 365, it is primarily geared towards women. It, the reason why is because men and women just don't see home organization the same. I mean, it's not 100% true, but it's 99% true. Like men can literally walk through a house and they don't see the things that are out of place. And women walk through a house and they go, this place is a mess. And it's not a mess, but they just internalize so much. That the house needs to be neat and orderly in order for their um, job to be done as a homeowner. And that is generational as well. Like the younger you get in generations, the less they feel that way. Um, but definitely for baby boomers and Gen Xers as well, Like. Our home is a reflection on the woman inside of the home. And so Organize 365 helps you get your home organized, but it doesn't get it organized to the perfectionist level or the Pinterest level or the magazine level. Like we just get it functionally organized so you can get out there and do what you were uniquely created to do, which is not laundry, by the way. I don't think anyone was (laughs) uniquely created to do, but that's what we end up. We end up 50, 60 years old and we're like, oh, I never started that business because, You know, the laundry was never finished. It's never going to be finished. Like, it's never going to be finished. That's
1: right. It's never going to be finished.
0: Just walk by it and start (laughs) the company that you were meant to start. Like, you'll impact so many lives that way.
1: Yes, I I love the way you put that. And by the way, let's hope my wife never sees this podcast. But with us, it's the opposite. I tend to be the one who's organized, you know, and my, my mom was always more clean and my dad was always more organized. Which Mm -hmm. is a good thing. He was a surgeon, you know. They are two different (laughs) skills. Probably want your lawyer to have some organizational skills too, but um, it's those are the skills and and things bug me that don't bug her. Like I cannot stand it if the bed is not made, so it just looks like the whole bedroom is a mess. But doesn't bug her at all.
0: (laughs) Really? Okay. So that's that's awesome to know. Then two things I would say about that. One, do you have somebody clean your house?
1: Uh, yes, but it's, it's like weekly, you know, it's not. Okay. That's good.
0: Cause I would say for sure, a hundred percent, have someone clean your house and then Cameron, (laughs) you just have to make the bed.
1: Yes. Because you're the one that cares. That's exactly right. Plus, I mean, so she works full time and and like I do. So it's not like I can say, well, you know, hold on a second. I'm doing all the work. So, but at the same time, it's like things that bug me a lot. Don't bug her. But at the same time, when it comes to like design, I used to be more into like house design and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, that's so beautiful, but now I'm like, yeah, I could live here, or it could look totally different. And but my wife is really into that now, you know. Yeah, it's just been pick the your battles. couple of years, she's like, well, what about this versus that? So sometimes I will say I like one versus another, just because if I don't sound like I put some thought into it, I know she's gonna, return yes, <laughs> she's right. gonna return she wants, it and buy another one. I'd be like, oh, I really want this one. I couldn't care less, okay? Yeah. Let's hope she never sees this podcast. But it, she might show me like two things and go, how's this one? I'm like, mm, this one for sure. This one for sure. That one sucks. If I said, I don't know, maybe this one should be like, you know, I'm three more times, she'll probably exchange it. Yeah. <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> There's no point to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I
0: think, it, uh, like, you know, when you question? get inside of your house, when you get huh? inside of your house, um. everyone is different. And I often will say to women, there are no organizing police. Like No one's going to come in and say you did it wrong. No one's even going to come in. We're in a pandemic for crying out loud. But right. even before that, very few people actually end up in our home. And, and if they do get in our home, they don't get in our bedrooms or our basements or our storage rooms. So really the level of organization you have in your house is personal. Personal for you and your spouse and your family and what degree of organization is enough for you to get out and have your time to read a book, take a bath, go for a walk, start a business, whatever you want to do, our house should function to that level of organization, not an unrealistic expectation that no one can
1: meet. Okay, that's, that's well put and it reminds me of my wife again because- She's cool about stuff and I'm not, you know. Meanwhile, I don't really contribute. I mean, like, for example, like the dishes, like, you know, the once in a while, the rare moment that I do the dishes it's perfect. It looks like you <laughs> can eat off of anything. It looks like it was done professionally. But she does it like all the time. She doesn't make a big deal about it. And she's not a jerk about it. And she's just, I, yep. think, she's, I think she's a lot it's closer it's to done. your attitude here. <laughs>
0: She'll like the podcast. She'll be like, I like Lisa.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think she'd like you. <laughs> you got We got to get that book. So how, yeah. do you, how do you get your book, Lisa?
0: It's everywhere. You can get it on Audible. You can get it in an ebook form. You can get it at um, your local indie bookseller, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's everywhere.
1: Yes. Tell us the full title again.
0: The Paper Solution by the Lisa Paper Woodruff. The Paper
1: Solution. Okay, let me see if I missed anything. No, are you? Are you? uh, Do you have any new books coming out?
0: No, we just published this one. Cameron, come on! (laughs) Oh
1: my gosh! Darn it! I'm waiting for the next one, Lisa.
0: My team will be like, "Why did you get her to say that?" I'll say something. They're like, "Ah, customer service emails." (laughs) Lisa said on this podcast she was coming out with another book. They're like, "Why do we let her talk?"
1: It's self-published and it's going to be competing with the one from Random House. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they will not like that very much. I'm sure that's in a contract somewhere that their lawyer had me sign.
1: That's right. That's right. That wasn't me. So don't look at me. <laughs> um, it's it's funny. It does add that credibility because, you know, we have a lot of people who um, come on our podcast and uh, it's... There are a lot of people who are are um, self publishing now versus yep. um, you know going to the traditional channels because it's really not that easy to to you know get a major publisher to publish yeah. you. So I, I thought when when your folks contacted me, I thought that was, wow, I'm like, this is pretty cool. Okay, let's see, let's see what we got here. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, I do have two self-published schools, two self-published books. Uh-huh. And I think if you wanna publish a book, I think self-publishing is awesome because one, you can get it to market way faster than with a traditional publisher, but also you can see how far your reach can take you on your own. So when you self-publish a book, you know, the amount of copies you're going to sell is how many copies you can sell. And that also shows a publisher that if you self-publish a book and you could sell over 5,000 copies, most books don't sell more than 5,000 copies. So you've got some traction there that then they can work with.
1: Okay. That sounds really, like really good advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask you some advice you can give me, some personal advice. Okay, sure. Um, I have... Um, I've started and I've grappled with writing a book for a long time. And remember what I do, a lot of what I do for a living is writing, writing legal briefs, et cetera, um, patents, um, transactional documents, et cetera. Lawyers are like professional writers, right? Mm -hmm. So why is it so hard for me to finish? Well, that's one question, but that's not my main question. Okay. (laughs) My main question is, yeah, you know, I don't understand the difficulty that I'm having because I, I guess there's, there's something in the back of my mind that says if I write this book, only two people are going to want to read it if it's the way I want, which will be, it's maybe this, this, this perfectionism thing. That yeah. like, if I write this book on this area of law, it better be such that anybody can pick it up and be able to create a document from scratch, right? Versus do I just write it to a lay audience where I just dabble and touch on a couple of things and it might have a wider viewership. But for me, I feel like I really let them down or myself down. And I'm, I'm having trouble between these two extremes as to do I write the perfect book that nobody reads or do I write the imperfect book that people will read? Do you ever deal with anything like that? Do you have any advice for me or, or other people who are looking? Yeah,
0: to- I think, um- So if you wrote this perfect book and only two people read it, but it changed their lives forever, how would that make you feel? Pretty good. (laughs) What if you wrote a more broad book and let's say a thousand people purchase it and it was a book they read sometime, but they don't remember the book. How'd that make you feel?
1: Um. I would feel. I mean, it's not like I have a very. This is not a, a mission for me that like you know I'm, I change two people's lives forever. You know I'm I'm not that much of a humanitarian. You know what I mean? I mean I want to I want to change a lot of people's. I want to improve something for a lot of people, um, but I don't need to improve everything for you know. I don't. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to build your house for you. It's like I just want to uh, help you in. Maybe you're answering the question or having me answer the question for myself. Uh, I think maybe I ought to be looking at maybe some specific areas and touch on those. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Instead of having this just very general kind of a book. I think that's what you've done here yourself.
0: Yeah. So the second book I self-published is called How ADHD Affects Home Organization. It's a very small book and really... It's this big, but only a third of it you even have to read. Like literally, if you get to page 50, you're done with the book. Like it's such a short book. It has big typeset, it's self self self-published. You can get it on Audible, Kindle, whatever. And the whole purpose of that book was because most people that come to me as a professional organizer either have or think they have ADHD, and that's why they're not organized. And my children have ADHD, and they went to an expensive learning disability school here in Cincinnati called Springer School and Center, which partners with Children's Hospital in doing some ADHD research. And they found that uh, the majority of the kids that go to this learning disability school also have ADHD as a comorbidity. And so I learned a lot about the brain and how ADHD affects education and what the eight executive functions were. But then as I was working with my professional organization clients, I realized that these same ADHD characteristics in children were exhibited by women in the home, but there was no teacher, no aid, no no supports there for those executive functions. And six of the eight needed to be supported in the home for the woman to be able to function day to day uh, without all that structure. And I knew that uh, it was a very short book. I knew that it probably has, you know, things in there that don't work for it, but it has been downloaded so many times and it has impacted so many people's lives in being able to be better organized because now they understand how their brain works, that it was worth it to me to do that book that way. Now, could I sell like I I mean, if I got a traditional publisher to do that book and we wrote it the way we did the paper solution, it would way outsell the paper solution because that need is so great. But if the book was done that well, I don't even know that the ADHD people would even buy it because it's too big, it's too long, like if you don't get to the point of the matter. And there, so many people say, I love this book because you literally can finish it in an hour because the back two thirds, you don't even need and you're already off and organizing and it works for you. So what is the purpose of the book? Is it to elevate your brand? Is it to you know, have you be the expert in this kind of intellectual property law? Is it to help other people start their own legal practice? Is it like you have to figure out what transformation do you want the reader to have? And then once you know what the transformation is, go back and figure out which kind of book and how long of a book and how detailed of a book will help that transformation for that reader.
1: Okay, that sounds like really great advice. Um, in my, I want to sort of tell people the real story about how, it, how the entire system works. And um, I also want to um, give them a benefit I think that I have that's very hard to find. It's difficult to find um, someone who has my specialty, who does transactions, mm-hmm. who does litigation yeah. as well as prosecution, et cetera. And that just it sort of colorizes everything, makes it a lot uh, deeper and more um, meaningful, except that, will anybody get it? So um, And Well, it has to be told in be, story. I'm sorry.
0: It would have to be told in story. So like, let's say that there are six things that you know behind the scenes that are really important for people. And those are going to be your six chapters. And you're going to start it with, you know, my client, Sally came in and here's the whole story. And then in the back be like, and here's what was happening on the legal half of it because people get sucked into the story and then they'll read the facts and then they'll get sucked into the next story and the next story. And the paper solution is written the same way. Most factual books that you actually will read are written that way that you get sucked into the story. And then you're like, Oh, well, how did they do that? And then you read the factual of how they did it.
1: Well, that's, I mean, that sounds like really great advice. It really does. Um, I, I like the way you put that and it, it really makes you sort of think. And I, I also, Let's not denigrate for any for a second short books. I mean, uh, the right. Art of War by Lao Tzu was a was a short book, um, and most classics are under 200 pages or so. They're not, you know, 5,000 pages. Most of the books that, that we cherish the most. So let's let's put a you know let's put an emphasis on that for a second.
0: I agree, but publishers don't want to buy. Small. You have to have like a sixty thousand word book for them. That's to part of it. the
1: business model of it. That's right. yeah But you yep. felt like you made such an impact. At the same time, it's good because it helped build your brand. It helped you to get your, right. your word out. Helped to get the message out. It helped to help the people who needed it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a little bit of a joke that you know if you have ADHD, you're not going to read a long book. <laughs> so, I, think, some, think about your target audience. Turn that into a joke. Yeah. <laughs> right. So. Uh, this is really good. I really enjoyed our talk together. Um, is, can you provide any information about how people can get a hold of you and your podcast before I let you go?
0: Yes. So, my website is organized365.com and my blog is organized365 as well, or my podcast is organized365 as well. Thank you. Thank you.